Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema, all the way up until present day. But today, we're talking about that most iconic of film years, silent film years, 1902. Big one. I am uh, one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell, the other host. I'm a filmmaker. And uh, we, together, formed the One Week, One Year podcast. <laughs> formed the, the great team. The of... Voltron of podcasts. <laughs> the the because... two-part Voltron. <laughs> Torso and legs. That's <laughs> all you need. Yeah. It's uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so we're like a classic film podcast, and because we're talking about movies that are copyright-free and silent and ancient, uh, if you would like to watch along, uh, there's a YouTube playlist that has all the movies that we talk about in this and every episode, and I finally remember to talk about it at the beginning of the show. Nice. Uh, Glenn, how you doing? I'm, uh, you know, I'm doing okay. Yeah? Yeah. You're finally back to work. I am, I am back to, back to work. I am doing, like... Doing menial television post-production tasks. <laughs> but that just shows how legit you are. True. So you're, yeah. You said you're doing, like, sound, uh, noise reduction, that kind of thing? I'm, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing what they call cleaning, which is I'm, I'm going through lots of raw footage and just taking out all the useless stuff. Oh, that is grunt work. Yeah. But hey, it's all it's all fun footage, so it's uh it's bearable. It's enjoyable for the most part. <laughs> uh I'm continuing to be unemployed and the main thing that I'm doing is painting a mannequin pink. Hey, um, someone's gotta do it. Yeah. Uh Anyway, we like to start off every episode of the show with a little bit of historical context. So, Glenn, will you bring us the news of the year 1902? The news of the year, 1902. Nathan Stubblefield invents the wireless telephone. Steam locomotives are banned in New York City after a collision in Park Avenue Tunnel. Are electric trains on the way? Tenor Enrico Caruso makes the first million-selling recording. Leon Sopelet sets the land speed record in a steam car of his own invention. The man reaches a stunning 74 miles per hour. Recently captured in the Spanish-American War, Cuba gains independence for the United States. The Second Boer War and the Philippine-American Wars come to a close. The 20th Century Limited locomotive opens and can take passengers from New York to Chicago in only 20 hours. On board are barbershop and secretarial services. The Commonwealth Franchise Act makes Australia the first country to grant women the right to vote. Unfortunately, only white and Maori women qualify, excluding Aboriginal Australians and Chinese immigrants. Kid Curry, the second-in-command of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, is captured and sentenced to 20 years hard labor. Morris Mitchum creates the teddy bear, inspired by President Teddy Roosevelt's mercy to a bear cub on a hunting trip. The court strikes down Edison's patent on 35mm motion picture film stock breaking his monopoly and allowing a standard size to be adopted across the world. Thanks, Glenn, for that news update. 
You're of a hundred and something years ago. Indeed. Gotta 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 stay stay up current. <laughs> gotta stay up up to date. This joke's the- going nowhere. <laughs> uh so we know why you're here. We know why you're here for this podcast, for this episode. Mm. But you gotta listen to the whole show. We're gonna make you wait. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to talk about the absolute garbage that was <laughs> released this year. We're going to make you wade through the trash with us. We're going to go quick, because yeah. we want to talk about A Trip to the Moon just as much as you want to hear about it. Um, but this was, other than this trip to the moon, this was, I, I mean, I don't want to like ruin everything that we're about to say, but this was one of the most, <laughs> this is one of the worst years that I've seen so far. Maybe the worst. It uh, it wasn't great. Yeah, it it did feel like a lot of, a lot of um. I feel like movies are getting longer and not necessarily better always. And when we say longer, I mean like six minutes. Yeah. Um, but hey, a six minute boring movie is a lot longer than a forty second boring movie. So. Yeah, and we're used to watching so many of these that six minutes feels like an eternity. Oh yeah. You better you better earn that six minutes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Only very few of these did. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how much I really want to talk about this one in particular, unless you have mm. something to say. But uh, uh, one movie that was, I, I wrote, it, 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 was, it was ten minutes long, and I wrote, it isn't long so much as it takes a long time for anything to happen. Is Jack and, <laughs> Jack and the Beanstalk? Yeah, oh, Jack um, and the Beanstalk. Uh, not not great. Didn't love it. No. Pretty um, boring. Yeah. And very low quality, so it's like hard to even appreciate the what's going on. I, I yeah, couldn't find the, anything HQ on online. The the YouTube uh copies of this are not of, of very good quality, which did make it a little bit more difficult to watch. Um I mean yeah, it's it's Jack and the Beanstalk, it kind of hits the the standard things. But Definitely going into it, I was like, oh, okay, we'll get some, like, giants and some, like, cool effects and stuff. Not really, not, not so much. Yeah, considering the giant that we saw in uh, the Magic Sword last week, uh, yeah. you, you'd think that they, they're they flexing their giant technology, you know? Yeah. Uh, but literally, these people are just the same size. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just a tall man. Um, um, but this is Edwin S. Porter, uh, who is Thomas Edison's main guy. Yeah, uh, and he made uh, he his most famous movie that he made is going to be next week, The Great Train Robbery. Mm. But he made a bunch of okay movies this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, an- another important one that he important to me anyway that he came out with this year is the the third in the Uncle Josh trilogy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> finally Uncle- rounding that that out. Um, it is probably also the worst of the Uncle Josh films. Interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would agree. I mean, it is a complete knockoff of another movie. <laughs> yes. Which I mean, the Uncle Josh movies are not. I wouldn't say they're uh, renowned for their originality. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other ones at least felt like they were sort of movies of a genre, less than they were direct knockoffs of other movies, which this kind of is. Right. So. To be clear, this is um, the first original film character, Uncle Josh, 
uh, in his third installment called Uncle Josh at the Motion the Moving Picture Show. <laughs> so the, the first two were just kind of early trick films. They were from two years ago, and they were spook ups in a spooky... Uncle Josh in a spooky hotel, and mm-hmm. uh, Uncle Josh, I don't know, fights a ghost or whatever it was. <laughs> um, uh, and this one is just a complete knockoff of The Countryman and the Cinematograph from last year. Right. I hadn't even thought about that. The first two were like supernatural comedies, were like spooky comedies. Right. This would be like if they made a third Ghostbusters movie and it was just the Ghostbusters like going to the movies or like going on like a trip to New Orleans and fighting no ghosts. Well, you know, I guess this is more about the adventures of the Uncle Josh character who is intended to be this kind of bumbling, uh, this bumbling hayseed uh, and the uh, going through the uh, the motion pictures of the time. And at the time... It was all big spooky stuff, yeah. And so Uncle Josh does spooky stuff, um, <laughs> and now it's uh, uh, formal experimentation and metatextual things. So Uncle Josh watches a movie at the movies. Yeah. We get another reference to uh, the audience being scared of a train coming at mm-hmm. the screen, mm-hmm. which is, uh, if not lending further credence to the the truth of that story at least sort of cementing it further into the public consciousness into myth yeah yeah for sure um and i mean you know it is a knockoff of the countryman the cinematograph from last year but i think it does a little more with the concept um you know he he tears down the screen at the end yeah um and uh he gets in a fight with the with the projectionist Mm -hmm. um which i would definitely fight someone if they tore down a movie screen yeah. uh, in front of me. It's also kind of interesting that when he tears down the movie, the the screen, the projector is behind the screen, thereby yeah. implying in the fiction of the film that it was being rear-projected, which I mm-hmm. don't think was really how they were doing it at this time. Oh, really? I, I have no idea. I thought that might be some indication that that was how they were doing it. Maybe. I, I don't know. Um, that would be very interesting if it was, because it would mean that they would be doing it mirrored i mean you know if you're projecting text onto the screen mm. i guess the, mm. the, if there was no text if there were no inter- intertitles or anything then it would be fine yeah i suppose so huh um yeah so you know he hoots and hollers at the screen he gets scared by a train and then he wants to fight with something on the screen because he can't understand <laughs> because but... uncle josh is an idiot <laughs> I think that's the end of the Uncle Josh movies, uh, I, I as far so. as I know. Um, yeah. The first film trilogy. We got we got um, to bring him back. I know we should film like an, a modern this day a, Uncle Josh. This movie. is a this is a film franchise that has been un, un, <laughs> untapped for over a hundred years. We need to like make a dark and gritty reboot yeah. of Uncle Josh. All all and... the all the Zoomers want a new Uncle Josh movie. <laughs> um. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of Edison movies with people with funny names, um, <laughs> my goodness, Foxy Grandpa! <laughs> Great, what a, what a character Foxy Grandpa is! Uh, so Foxy Grandpa and uh, another one that we'll talk about in a second, which is the Twentieth Century Tramp or Happy Hooligan and His Airship. Are th- uh, there are two Foxy Grandpa movies and that one movie, and they are the first comic book adaptations 
Right. Um, yeah. In, I, in I, film history. I also noted this. <laughs> um, From I mean, this yeah, all the way to Avengers. Uh, they're based on, on comic strip characters from mm-hmm. the, the contemporary time. Um, you could make the argument that these aren't comic book movies since comic strips are different. But uh, nah. that means we won't be getting into comic book movies until at least the 1930s. So, but are you saying that the Marmaduke movie is not a comic book movie? <laughs> uh, I guess I am. Yeah, um, I'm saying you so, can make the make you make the argument. It's all sort of, you know, it's however, you know, specific you want to be. Yeah. Um, I decide to count it. Yeah. But yeah, these are two movies about Foxy Grandpa. <laughs> For for those of you unfamiliar, which I'm assuming is everyone, yeah, Foxy it's Grandpa a- was a comic a comic strip character who I guess was just an old man who got into hijinks. Yeah, I mean, apparently it was sort of a reversal of um, the Captain Jammer kids, where it was two mm. kids who were trying to prank a, an older person, and and they got into hijinks. And the joke was that uh, the old person got pranked. Um, but Foxy Grandpa, I guess, meaning that like he's like cunning, basically. Yeah, it is definitely um, Foxy in the in the more old timey sense of the word, as in kind of smart and crafty, and not like Fox, not like ooh, sexy. <laughs> um, the the setup of Foxy Grandpa comic strips are that the 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 kids try and uh, uh, try and fool grandpa but then he turns around and fools them every yeah. time the i mean the full title of this movie is the boys think they have one the boys think they have one on foxy grandpa but he fools them <laughs> which, which is I a read th- great title yeah i read through a few of the comic strips and that's that's this general setup of, mm. of Ex- the foxy explaining grandpa the strips. entire plot in the title yes um <laughs> like i can't think of a good joke for that um an old man dies and talks about his sled from when he was a kid. Whoa, whoa, spoilies. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're they're whatever, but it's they're kind of notable that they are uh, silly little movies that are based on comic strips. Um, there's another one which uh, is another uh, Edwin S. Porter movie because he was just cranking them out uh, for Thomas Edison. Um, is the 20th Century Tramp or Happy Hooligan and His Airstrip Airship? Is this the first or title? Uh I don't know. It sounds kind of familiar. I know. It's it's funny how like uh more contemporary movies use the kind of or in the title as I don't know, it always seems like sort of an an, an artful flourish. You know, like, Interesting. like Birdman or, or Doctor Strange Love that have these like uh, really long titles with kind of separated by an or. I had always considered contemporary titles with the word or in them to just be a reference to Dr. Strangelove, but maybe mm. I'm wrong. Um, I feel like this one, it, the only reason it's doing it is because it's just trying to get two titles out there into one title. Right. Which I think is how this whole sort of like title scheme started. Oh, um, interesting. I'm assuming since this is one of the earliest I've noticed anyway. And it, it is just sort of like, we couldn't decide on which title it is. So here's both. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's the 20th century tramp or to be more clear about uh, its origins. And this is the first it's, it came out before Foxy grandpa, mm. um, happy hooligan and his airstrip airship and happy hooligan is another comic strip character from that time. 
uh, and he is a hobo who gets into adventures. Um, the thing that mystifies me about this movie is that the adventure that he gets into is that he is uh, piloting a <laughs> flying bicycle, which doesn't really seem like a hobo thing yeah. to do. Cla- classic hijinks on the streets. <laughs> like it, it seems a little incongruous with the the happy hooligan character, and that yeah. it might have just been like a a tie in to a um cop, uh, a popular guy at the time. Yeah. Uh, another they're, notable they're, thing. They're just using the license, trying to get trying to get yeah. trying to get the fans <laughs> to show up. So. Something that I, I ended up cutting out of the last video, because or the last um, episode, because we were a little confused about, mm. um, was a, a, a Ferdinand Zecca movie from last year that you brought up and I hadn't heard of, uh, called Conquering the Air, La Conquête de l'Air. Oui. Um, and it was... Uh, <laughs> You, you know, you brought it up, but I, I maybe doubted you incorrectly um, because it looked too good for 1901 in my <laughs> eyes. Uh, there was, like, con- conflicting information about that movie online about whether it came out in 1901 or 1904 or so. 5. Yeah. Um, but based on the existence of this movie, it seems to say that it was inspired by that Zecca movie, which is a similar deal. Considering how many of the uh, American films are direct remakes slash knockoffs of French movies, yeah, it it that stands to reason that the Ferdinand Zeka one did come out first, and that uh, Edwin S. Porter just just blatantly kind of remade it as this weird comic book movie. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the way the movie looks. Although, if you're watching it on YouTube, you know what it looks like already. Uh, just get that plug in there. Um, is that, like, it's it's a it's split-screen effect that is yeah. done through multiple exposures, um, where there's somebody on, like, a kind of fantasy uh, steampunk bicycle that flies, um, and then uh, on the top half of the screen, and then on the bottom half of the screen is a sort of, like, rolling shot of the top of tops of, of like rooftops yeah um to make it seem like they are flying through the sky um which is done very well in the zeka movie and done quite poorly in the <laughs> uh porter movie <laughs> yeah uh, uh there's like a pretty big seam in it <laughs> yeah it's definitely just everything about the quality of it is is a, a little bit lower um it, it still looks very cool. It's still like a cool effect, but it's it's not nearly as as seamless as uh, as the Zeko one. Mm-hmm. So we're just sliding that 1901 in there that we that we missed. Oh yeah, um, put that put that in the pl- playlist too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there was uh, I only watched one uh, British film from this year. I mm-hmm. shouldn't say that. I, wa- I watched a, a few um, Michelin Kenyan films, but they weren't really. It was more of the same. Um, yeah. I think we kind of said everything we need to say about them uh, mm-hmm. last episode. Uh, but I did watch uh, the one film released by James Williamson this year, uh, The Little Match Seller. Yep. Which was, I thought, quite good. Yeah. 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 Um, it's uh, it's based on a on a, a short story, I think, by an author whose name I can't remember. 
Hans Christian Andersen. There you go. That guy. Yeah. Uh, that guy that everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> um, Who's that guy? Uh, uh, Homer? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that guy who wrote the play um, uh, Shakespeare? Is that him? Um, but it's, uh, it's based on a story about uh, a, a little girl living on the streets trying to sell matches and she in the story she lights a match and has and sort of sees a vision of uh a better life in each match that she strikes and we see that uh you know visualized in this film in a really cool way which is yeah we sort of see the girl out on out on the street peddling her matches yeah, and it's snowing and, and cold outside it's snowing there's people throwing snowballs and ignoring her and she looks very sad and cold and to kind of warm herself or just to escape she starts lighting some matches and each time that she does there's a uh, a double exposure um sort of second image that appears on the wall next to her mm-hmm. of um of like a a, a a table full of food or um like a christmas tree yeah um, and just like nice scenes, nice warm scenes that to just make you feel awful yeah. for this kid. Yeah, and then you know once you've gotten real good and sad about it, uh, she dies, and a policeman finds her cold, frozen body, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Well, yeah, she dies, but um, in in another sort of double exposure effect, almost in a Looney Tunes Looney Tunes sense. Um, uh, an angel, uh, which I guess in the original story is her grandmother, uh, reaches down from the kind of vision that she sees and takes her soul like out of her body, uh, like that right. someone would die in a Tom and Jerry cartoon or something like that, um, and then like takes her off to heaven. Yeah, and then she she's happy in heaven. Um, man, how did I forget about the ghosts in this movie? There's so many ghosts in movies from this time that yeah, I straight up forgot that there is a ghost. In this movie, <laughs> um, an angel and a ghost. There's a lot of fairies and angels in these movies, also, um, which I think was just sort of a uh, part of the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, the zeit ghost, <laughs> the poltergeist of the time. <laughs> uh, all right, what 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 else did we watch? Um, uh, Criminy. Well, uh, so. Zeka made some movies this year, um, but I didn't really find them to be. I didn't like them as much as the ones from last year. No, um, there. I think they're fairly notable, though, in in terms of how ambitious they are. One is the victims of alcoholism, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, a sort of spiritual sequel to uh, History of a Crime. It's another sort of dramatic tragedy of of a life in ruin. Yeah, it's like um, a morality play. It seems like yeah. that's his bread and butter in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, it worked well for him the first time. Um, yeah. But this time, it's all about the the the, the dangers of of alcoholism and and uh, and wine drinking and absinthe and such. Um, absinthe is actually uh, name checked in the background. In, oh, one, I didn't notice in, that. It's, I believe it's said on one of the, like the the street uh, signs. Uh-huh. Um, this one had some French intertitles that weren't translated on YouTube, and so it got me to pull out my phone uh, 
to to use the like Google Translate like vision thing that you can oh, just like wow. hold it over and it'll translate it in. in the How picture. did that work? Pretty good. I, yeah. I you know I I learned. I mean, so the scenes are just the intertitles are really just introducing the scenes. Yeah. About uh, uh, the 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 bad things that happened to him. Um, um, the bad things being uh, there's sort of a nice dad with a nice family who comes home. Um, and we're introduced to that to his his home life, and um, and then he he is introduced to the the wonders of of uh, of alcohol while out on the town, and uh, soon his family is living uh, in a cold attic um, because he went to the cabaret too many times, um, and it it ends with him as kind of sort of a raving lunatic in an insane asylum. Uh, in a padded room, yeah, which Dri- um, driven mad by lust for booze, yeah. Um, it's it it it's uh it's not a subtle movie, no. It's a it's a very it's going hard for the temperance crowd, I think. Yeah, I guess you know, um, uh, Edison takes the other approach, and uh, <laughs> Zeka, um, considering little preview. Zeka makes a 45 minute long Jesus movie next year. Oh, um, fun. So, uh he may be on the other side of the yeah. temperance thing. Yeah. Um, um this film definitely supports that. Um uh it's kind of interesting that this was adapted or at least inspired by a novel by uh Emil Zola. Remember him? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, hmm. coming full circle on on uh, Emil Zola adjacent films of the 1900s. Yeah. Huh. The uh the poster of this movie. I'm assuming this was a contemporary poster. There's a poster on Letterboxd for this movie. It's a cool poster. It's a very cool poster and it's of a guy holding a uh, a a glass and there's a sort of absinthe ghost coming out of the glass and like grabbing onto his head. Um it really I I recently went on the kind of like a deep dive reading about the like anti-absinthe movement of the 1900s. Oh, interesting. And how it was sort of kind of a scapegoat for all of alcoholism. It was sort of like the, the temperance movement really kind of latched onto absinthe as like, because it was just very strong, I guess. Um, hmm. And sort of visually unique. Um, there was, there was definitely a, a, like a specificity to which people went after absinthe as this like awful terrible drug uh that made you that made you see ghosts or fairies and things and um so that's how it got like targeted and got banned i suppose yeah and it's it's also how the whole sort of absinthe makes you hallucinate thing got started which is very untrue it's just strong booze (laughs) if you drink enough of it you might start to hallucinate i guess but i think that's because you're dying more than it's because uh, well, if you're if you're going mad, then then yes, right, yeah. Um, that comes more from the alcohol poisoning than any any effect <laughs> that uh, absence really has. Yeah, um, I, I thought this movie was okay, um, but as compared to History of a Crime, um, it doesn't hit as hard. I don't think. I I think the emotions are higher and more, and you dig deeper into them in History of a Crime, and this one, yeah. Um, it's like he drinks and then they suffer and then he goes mad. History of a Crime really had the sort of like flashback uh, structure to it too that made it really effective. 
Yeah. Um, the only other movie from Ferdinand Zecca I watched from 1902 was Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. Yeah. Which is very lavish and sort of um, sort of big in its in its production quality, but uh, I gotta tell you, I have no idea what happened in that movie. <laughs> I'm not all that familiar with with you know the the stories of of Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. Um, I did not bother to really get deep dive into it because I didn't like the movie that much. Um, <laughs> It's it looks cool. It it's 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 uh it's very long. It's one yeah. of the longest movies of this of this year. It's like a little it's around 10 minutes, I think. Mhm. 10 or 11, yeah. Um and it's got tons of like great set design. Um Yeah. There's like a cave with rocks that kind of move out of the way in the opening. Um yeah, I think the set design is the coolest thing about the movie. Uh, yeah. And the only one that's surviving, as far as I know, is a version that was re-released in 1905 that added colors, um, uh, which is the one that we watched. Uh, right, the, the, the hand-painted uh, yes. version of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was, there was some cool set design, definitely. But And I like did a quick look at the summary of the plot before I watched it, but still it just seemed like a lot of scenes you know, yeah. there's something about I think we're already getting into um, into these aspects of movies that are are somehow like it, one thing is ineffably more uh, 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 sweep upable, you know you can get swept up in it uh, yeah. than others like when I watched A Trip to the Moon, I was into it, you know. Yeah, and it, it had to do with the clarity of the storytelling and, um, and the way that the movie looks and uh and the visual storytelling and that I don't think was really there for this one so much. Yeah, and I, I think it's sort of um, you know, we're seeing more, we're seeing movies getting longer and more elaborate and more lavishly made. Um, and I think this is a case of all of those things being true, but without much purpose to them. There's no mm-hmm. real reason for this to be as long as it is. There's no reason for it to have as many scenes as it does. Uh, this could have been a two scene film and it would have been, yeah. it would have been really cool. Um, but it's just, it just keeps going. <laughs> it's also funny that we're like complaining about this movie being so long and it's 10 minutes long, but Hey, <laughs> when, you know. When we're watching 40-second movies. But also, it's like, you know, if it doesn't justify the length, then it doesn't justify the length. And Um, uh, I think for any movie or any project, hello podcasts that are very long, (laughs) um, you know, every minute should count and every second should count. Um, The other thing I'll say about this movie is that it contains a very white attempt at belly dancing that that doesn't doesn't really... There are are not one but two dance scenes in this movie that, Mm -hmm. like, go on for a bit. They're just sort of like, and now some dancing. Right. Um... Um, Yeah, we could could get into a a whole can of worms with this movie about, like, you know, Orientalism, too, of how... This white French guy is like the Middle East, ooh Arabia stuff, and yeah. uh, it's all very kind of surface. It's all very like what a French person's idea of 
the Middle East would be like in 1902? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not saying we the, need to get into that, but I'm just saying it's there. Yeah, the politics of this era, the kind of racial politics of this era, oh, are, are something that are beginning to rear their head a little more. I mean, we've seen blackface from time to time, though I think I saw the most blackface movies in one year on this year. Um and and there's little things that we don't even need to mention, but um, I, I think the people just weren't, you know, it's 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 a combination of people being dumb and old timey, and also uh, movies themselves coming out of a vaudeville tradition where all that stuff was invented. Yeah, know? it's before people learned how to treat other people with empathy. <laughs> Um, Before people learned that other people were people. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the one of the only really notable, like, uh, Elise Guy Blaché movies that I watched this year, um, uh, Midwife to the Upper Class, is mm-hmm. uh, pretty fun in general, except for a really awful... Uh, very racially insensitive joke right in the middle, which kind of brings the whole thing down. Um, which I laughed at, but because like it was absurd, you know, it is, it is absurd. It's, it's, it's played to, you know, it's like, it's such a, you know, it's a very silent movie kind of like overreaction kind of thing. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, absurd in, in terms of its silly racism. Yeah. Everything about Um, it is just absurd. Um, but uh, this can kind of continues also Elise Guiblache's thing of just casting only women in her movies, which I I still can't tell if it's like intentionally queer or if it's just she just only casts women in her movies. I um, didn't notice that was the case. Well, so this is like two women show up to uh, I guess a baby peddler to to buy a baby, um, and you know I I don't know if that was like intended as a sort of like. Two women getting a baby, or if it was just sort of like <laughs> these ladies were around. They're the only actors I have today, right? Um, uh, this also has more like Cabbage Patch babies in it, which I guess is a thing with Elise Guiblache. She likes yeah. making movies about babies coming out of cabbage. My my estimation was that she re- remade this movie because she or she made this movie because she had those baby cabbages lying around, right? You know? Yeah, so um, those giant cabbages. I think someone on Letterboxd called this called this a sequel to uh, the Cabbage Fairy, which is maybe a little bit of a stretch. But the Cabbage Fairy opens up her own small business. It's yeah, it's certainly the in the Cabbage Fairy cinematic universe. <laughs> um. What else is there besides Big Man himself? I don't think I watched uh, much else. Well, there's one thing which is notable, but uh, not interesting. Uh, <laughs> or, well, it's notable. It's So, it doesn't actually have a title. Uh, but the title it goes by is Alfred Raymond, Agnes May, and Wilfred Sidney. Um, and it is the first movie, recently discovered in the last ten years, the first movie that um uh has actual color in it instead of being hand painted um it's it was shot with i think with like a color wheel over the camera and i don't know if it was ever actually produced in color at its at the time oh, uh, but wow. it had like a red green and blue um 
uh, uh, three strip kind of situation. Mm -hmm. It's 30 seconds long. It's a shot of the guy's kids playing. It's a shot of a uh, marching band uh, or like a um, a parade. Uh, There is a a kid on a swing and a scarlet macaw, which is a good use of uh, the color. Great use Uh, of color. And yeah, it's kind of just a test film. Uh, The guy actually died the year after he shot it. Um, But uh, it is the very first natural color movie ever made. Yeah. So, which yeah. is pretty pretty wild that it's this early. Yeah. Um an- another thing I, you know, like when we had talked about that um the French sound film from I forget if it was last last week or the week before. Um which or even the um the W.K. Dixon uh uh sound film experiment. Um yeah. Like I, I, I feel like I have, um, I've read a lot about film history and I didn't know about this stuff, which is, is cool. And also kind of weird that it's like, these are big developments that, uh, don't, don't really get mentioned much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and something I've noticed too, is a lot of movies that, um, a lot of movies that just happen to be more popular kind of randomly and they end up getting credit for things that they mm-hmm. didn't actually do. Yeah. Um, which I can't think of any specific examples, but we've seen it. Um, well, after all of this, I think this brings us to the big man himself, George Melies. Big man on the, campus. The star of our podcast. The star <laughs> film of our podcast. Ah! And, uh, and MVP of this and every year. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so he made a lot of movies, like, like you were saying earlier, I think he made more surviving movies this year than pretty much any we've seen so far. He had, he had a lot of movies. This yeah. Year. This year was, it's, I mean, it's the release of his easily his most famous movie, mm-hmm. but he made a ton of stuff this year and a lot of it, a lot of it was very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um so now that we're into the cool stuff, let's let's get to it. Um there was I don't even know if this is worth mentioning. There was a movie The Colonel Shower Bath, which is just Narman man getting dunked on. Um uh but the French title is La Douche de Colonel, which is funny. Oh, um yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you mentioning this movie? And I was like, Oh yeah, that's why I remember now. Because because I'm a child. Because I'm twelve. <laughs> um he made a bunch of like trippy egg magic movies, which we don't really need to like get into too much detail with because they're kind of just more, uh, like whiz- like magiciany trick films. Yep. Um, but they all have eggs in them for some reason. Um, yeah, including what one is one's called the prolific magical egg because yeah. I guess this is like really a thing. <laughs> um, he made a a couple of movies with sort of a new effect from him that i haven't really seen before which is uh shooting multiple exposures but from different angles yeah yeah so he'll he there's one which is an impossible balancing feat which is a sort of staged like balancing act type movie but it's done with an effect of melies copying himself with multiple exposures but the multiple exposures of himself that are being added are shot from above 
Yeah. And so he's he's sort of like uh he's able to sort of do like acrobatics and things against the black floor as if it's the background. And so it you know, it's sort of like the uh sort of similar I guess to the sort of like turn the camera on its side and it looks like you're walking up a wall. It's like Yeah, yeah. But this is like these are the first even though they're not direct, they're the first kind of straight down from above shots we've seen. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's it's cool that, like, he's discovered a good trick with this double exposure uh, mm-hmm. stuff. And he's finding new ways to augment it, to do new things. Yeah, he's already bored with it. Like, he's already trying to find new ways to make it yeah. cool and interesting and new. This is why this is why we like Meliers. Yeah, he, he does not. He doesn't stick to it being good enough. He is constantly pushing the envelope. Some, something that I've noticed is that, oh, a trend sort of that I've noticed is that uh, you could say the French are making advances in storytelling and effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, the English are making advances in. Um, in like shots and and like form formal stuff like like uh, new angles and and new ways of cutting, mm-hmm. um, and the Americans are Americans are taking not... both of those things and blatantly repackaging them and selling them at a higher price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, for a country that's supposed to be you know, the genesis of film or whatever, the, 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 the premier place where film is done. Um, we did not have a gracious start. No, um. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I don't know if I've, I, I mean, I know next week we'll get to a good one, but I'm trying to think of like a really genuinely good American film that we've seen so far. And they're, they're pretty few and far between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought an, impos- an impossible balancing feat, uh, you know, he's getting really practiced with this double exposure stuff. And mm-hmm. so um, he's having, you know, himself as the main guy and then four, three other people balance on, three three other of himself balance on his hands and his head. And it looks so smooth. Yeah. It looks, uh, you know, he started out really choppy with a lot of this stuff, but it it looks like they're really just standing there. Mm-hmm. Um which is great. Yeah. Um, it, it it goes to show how he's like, he's willing to put the effort in to like, get it right. Like he yeah. really does stuff until it works. Um, I know you'd mentioned a couple of weeks ago of like, he must have so much, he must have had so much test footage for all this stuff of him just like mm-hmm. trying it over and over again. Um, and considering like over half of his movies are lost. I'm sure that stuff doesn't exist anywhere, but it'd be cool to see. Um, he also made a he, the human fly, mm-hmm. which uh, was a similar premise to the earlier film, The Human Flies, which I did not enjoy. I did enjoy <laughs> this one a lot because this is about a guy dancing all over a wall. Um, that's kind of yeah. the whole plot is like a guy shows up and dances on the wall and everyone loves it. Um, yeah, but he dances. He like moves from the wall to the ground in a really smooth way. Yeah, which I was almost like a little unsure of how he did it at the beginning. Um, yeah, it took me a second to realize he's doing the same effect as an, impo- an impossible balancing feat. He's just doing it even better here. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so uh, it's so clean. It really looks like he is just um, 
he's he's just walking from the floor onto the wall um and uh and then doing break dancing on the yeah. wall basically it also is a great showcase for Melies as a performer like he's doing all of that acrobatics and dancing and stuff and he's very good at it i guess that's true man what a shame that he kind of went into obscurity in his later life, you know? I know, yeah. Like, I guess we'll probably get into it when, when we get to that point, like, in his career. But, yeah, mm-hmm. he, didn't, he did not have, like, the happiest life after after this. Um, or you can just watch the movie Hugo, and that will explain it for you. Yeah, that's for 2011. Um, he did, uh, 1902 was the last year that Melies did reconstructed newsreels. Um, I guess after Trip to the Moon, he was like, I'm done with reality. I'm not making these anymore. This is <laughs> bullshit. Um, one of them is Lost, uh, the Catastrophe of the Balloon Lepax, which is a reconstruction of an airship disaster, which sounds mm-hmm. like it would be interesting to watch, but it's Lost. Um, the Eruption of Mount Pele, or uh, in the UK, the Terrible Eruption of Mount Pele and Destruction of St. Pierre... Saint-Pierre Martinique um, <laughs> is a very cool one. It's it's only one shot. There's no actors. Um, but it's like a bunch of effects all layered together of a volcano erupting and destroying a town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, are, are there a bunch of effects? It kind of just looked like a miniature town with a bunch of smoke above it. Well, it's got the smoke. It's got like some little lava effects. I think there's some like uh, some like chalk that he used to make like ash rain down. Um, mm, yeah, uh, it's very kind of painterly. Like it, it doesn't it does not look like real footage. It looks like a sort of heightened, as all of Melies's movies tend to, um, a sort of uh, like hyper real. Uh, yeah, volcano eruption. Um, there was some YouTube YouTube uh, confusion on this one also. There's um, uh, Melies' version of this was lost until about 2007, but Ferdinand Zaka also made a version of it um, that was all, often misidentified as the Melies one. Uh, oh. And they're both on YouTube, and most of them credit the Zaka one to Melies. Um, oh, maybe I watched the wrong one. Although I did, it was from Flickr Alley, so they. Have only made one huge mistake so far. Um, the Zeka one is definitely going for something a bit closer to photorealism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also an Edison one, but I couldn't find it anywhere. It, mm-hmm. it might be lost. I'm, it might just not be on YouTube. We, you know, we were talking about new ways that he's using the double exposure tricks. And mm. so Gulliver's Travels. Oh, yeah. We, sh- uh, we, we should talk about these first. You're right. Um, yeah. Yeah, Gulliver's Travels, or Gulliver's Travels Among the Lilliputians and the Giants. Yeah. I love this one. I thought this one yeah, was, it was great. Yeah, it was so good. It was really yeah. good. Um, I was, I was, I was, uh, the first scene is a giant man who is uh, walking through a tiny town, and I, in, in my notes I wrote, first kaiju movie? Ah! <laughs> um, I mean, that, like, effect, though, it's, it's a actor walking through a miniature town to make him look like a giant yeah yeah which is has been used up through the 60s and 70s yeah um, uh, um but the real the real deal effect in this one 
is that dinner scene. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. my god. Um, so I guess it's Gulliver himself. I don't really know the what that whole. Yeah. The, I assume the Lilliputians are the small one, and Gulliver is the big one. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, Gulliver is um, a normal sized guy. The Lilliputians are the, the the small like miniature people, and then yeah. they're they're giants. After he encounters the Lilliputians, uh, he's eating at a table at like a. And so he t- he is huge, and he takes up the whole left side of the frame. And there's a sort of a split screen effect, um, uh, hor- uh, vertical this time mm-hmm. instead of horizontal, um, and they have filmed much further back a bunch of people who are the Lilliputians, and they are, and the seam in the middle is right at the edge of the table, and so they are. Uh, they set up a ladder and they climb up the table and they put things on the table for him. It's amazing. It's mind blowing. They, they put things on the table for. They pour wine into a cup that he then reaches over and drinks from. It's so good. And he like he picks up he picks some of them up in in a little uh, uh, kind of Carriage. carrier thing. Yeah. yeah, and then and then drops them down on the other half of the scene, and then they're mm-hmm. humans. It's it's so good. Yeah, it, like. You can tell that there's a seam there, but the ways that the two halves interact with each other are so well planned out and so yeah. uh, 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 convincing. You know, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of different, very simple effects that he's using of like substitution splices and split screen and multiple exposure and like you know all these things. But combine them all at once, uh, it's it's. Even to, like, modern eyes, it's pretty impressive. It's like, oh, shit, this looks really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this movie got me really thinking about... I mean, this is definitely, like, Melies playing around with scale a lot mm-hmm. as as he is starting to do more and more. Um, and it made me think about how, you know, Melies always shoots his movies from uh, one angle, typically. Sort of, like... A, a very a pretty wide shot of like an entire scene, yeah, and like you know, a stage, exactly, exactly like a stage. So that if you're watching it on a screen, it would appear like a stage, mm-hmm. and therefore the actors would probably approximate a, roughly the same size as a person. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, he shoots the Lilliputians from super far away, so they're tiny on screen. Yeah, um, we never see close-ups of the Lilliputians; they're always crowds of of like tiny people yeah and then when the giants show up the giants are shot at a like medium to close-up shot of which them. is so weird for so, him right it's it's like the only time he's ever done that other than like like the balloon head blowing up like he's never yeah. shot people this close up and it made me think about the reason he's doing that is so that on a movie screen they're going to be blown up really huge like he's directly trying to give a sense of scale mm. to the audience based on how big people are in the frame, which I think is really cool. That's interesting. So it's you're you're saying that it's kind of it's it's made with that all of his films are made the way they are because they're made with an eye toward what they'll look like when exhibited. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than um cutting close to something for the sake of being able to cut close to something like, yeah. within the fiction of the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't uh, know if he's even thinking in those terms, but it, this movie really kind of brought that 
into my mind at least right. of like the only time he's ever doing a sort of traditional like medium or close up shot is when they're giants. Yeah. To kind of yeah. make them appear really enormous. Um which I mean, you know, but the, also they're not giants, they're humans. And so this this is being shot from the perspective of from like the visual perspective of the small people. Um it's emphasizing their giantness. Uh uh but it's not it's not an objective view mm. it's it's a very subjective view of them yeah mm. cool yeah um there's also uh robinson crusoe yeah which we could talk about a bit um i have less to say about this one yeah same i mean it's i think the story is told well um mm-hmm. uh and it uh it's engaging the whole time, but there's something that's, it's about, it's almost as long as, uh, um, trip to the moon. Um, right. and it's an, in it's an original version. It was pretty much equally as long. Um, yeah, but a couple minutes are lost. It's like 12 minutes or something right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it doesn't sweep you up in quite the same way. Uh, I will say though, that the, the mats, the backgrounds mm. are so good. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful. Oh, yeah. The matte paintings. Um, uh, I mean, they're, they're not sh- really matte paintings. I mean, they're they're just paintings, I think. I suppose so. Yeah, um, set dressing. Yeah. yeah, set dressing, basically. Uh, yeah, there were a few, like, real kind of stand. I mean, like, the, the shipwreck mm-hmm. uh, set is really cool. Um, the whole kind of, like, hurricane scene with like the the trees moving in the wind and like uh I think it was multiple exposures for like the lightning or sort of like flash mm-hmm. flashes in the sky. Um there's a sort of prolonged ending which feels pretty earnest and and kind of emotional of of Robinson Crusoe returning home. But also <laughs> Mostly due to the source material of Robinson Crusoe, it it does fall pretty hard on a lot of like colonialist bullshit. Yeah. Um, and and does uh, a lot of blackface, which sucks. Um, I mean, it is kind of most adventure movies tend to fall on colonialist bullshit. Um, I yeah. think even Trip to the Moon does to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um. So that made it a lot less fun to watch from a modern context. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about the psychology of the people that who are, who are making these movies as we're watching them. And there's something about Robbins or uh, about Melies that seems really kind to me. Mm, Yeah. Um, and I don't, unlike, uh, uh, some of the people related to Thomas Edison, I don't really think that Melies is doing this from a malicious perspective. Right. Some some of the other movies, when they're getting into, like, weird 1900s uncomfortable racial stuff, mm-hmm. or I should say just outright racism, uh, particularly the American ones, feel racist. They feel like yeah. they're... Uh, it's coming from a, a hateful place. Right. Whereas... In the Melies movies, it's more of like he's 
he's he doesn't know any better like right. um which is terrible you know it's like that's that's not an excuse but um there there's sort of an innocence to his movies i think yeah that that makes it a lot more palatable and yeah it definitely doesn't seem like you know he's he's kind of doing things in a vaudevillian tradition uh but he's not really i don't really get the sense that he was a uh a particularly uh, bigoted person yeah. other than his just kind of backwards privileged French life. <laughs> um, that I guess being we, said, we've exhausted all of our other material. I guess we have to talk about the one, the one good movie. Yeah. We have to talk about it. Uh, do we have to? <laughs> now uh, let's just skip it. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to talk about, the most famous silent movie ever. <laughs> yeah. Also the most famous movie and probably until like 1927. Yeah. Like the most famous movie. This is it's, more famous than any movie from 1927. You think this so? Is probably, it probably is. You're right. Yeah. It's, this is, it is like top five famous movies. Maybe. May, maybe. Yeah. Um, which, ooh, we got a lot of yeah. unfamous stuff ready to go for you coming um, up. Or at least, it is. at least, like, top five sort of, like, iconic, like, film visuals, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This is maybe one of the more referenced or most referenced movies ever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. It is... We've said the title, like, 20 times already in this episode. La Voyage dans la Lune. Oui. Trip to the Moon. It's so good. It is really good. <laughs> like it there's it, it it deserves its place. Yeah. I think. Because we like Melies, but this is a cut above. Yeah. It's amazing. He's he's had done himself. <laughs> um I also I uh I've been watching all these movies on my laptop for the most part. This one I was mm-hmm. like it's going on the TV. I'm like, I'm getting the family together, we're gonna get snack we didn't get snacks, but I was like I made a, a big deal out of it. Oh, nice. Um, also, like, my parents hadn't seen it, so I was like, you gotta watch this old movie, it's great. Um, what did they think? They were like, it's weird. And I was like, eh, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> I tried to do that, but everyone was like, I'm too busy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah. put it on the TV as well, I and mean, I, I played it from a uh, Blu-ray that I stole from work. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this movie is is magical. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it like, what I was saying before, it really sweeps you up into it yeah it's uh it's very fast paced Mm -hmm. um other than maybe the like first scene or two which goes on a little bit long i think yeah but it it doesn't i don't think it outstays its welcome necessarily no Um, no it doesn't um i'm just because i'm just because it's 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 building you know it's it's building to this big moment i think and it's true that and that works you're sort of like when are they going to get to the moon? And so when they finally get to the moon, it's like, it, it feels like a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what, <laughs> where to start on this stuff? Where to start? Um, I mean, I feel like it is sort of Melies pushing himself in a lot of ways. Like the sets are probably the most elaborate he's ever done. There's yeah. like a lot of moving pieces in the sets. They're not mm-hmm. like simple backdrops or sort of like, there's a lot of uh, like mechanical or like physical stuff in in the set work. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's super impressive and super imaginative. Um, and speaking of the sets, um, if we're going to jump around a little bit in the content, the content of the movie, uh, there are some scenes that are, uh, the way that the sets are painted, they're really like reaching out diagonally through the frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, like the, uh, the cannon that shoots the Mm -hmm. bullet into the moon. Classic. It's just, it looks, it's painted in such uh, uh, an evocative, like, uh, I don't even know what to say. It, it, it's, it's, it's so, it, it looks almost deco. It's very mm-hmm. just, uh, this imposing thing that's cutting through the frame. And there's another scene where the scientists are kind of surveying, uh, the whole work site, uh, when they're building the cannon and, um, they're standing off on the right and then like in deeply into the background, you see the, uh, behind them, the whole, the whole scene playing out, uh, uh, like in, in, in miniature to sell the kind of very far away effect. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the, it, one of the more like, you could call it deep focus, but it's like, it's, it's emulating this type of shot that, um, it's, I don't know. It's not even necessarily possible in real life. But right. It... Yeah. Um, well, like with uh, what is it, Gulliver's Travels, he's mm-hmm. he's doing a lot with scale, and he's yeah. doing that mostly with the sets, and sort of like building them in the way that they feel massive, like mm-hmm. uh, like with the cannon and things like that. Like he'll build just part of it, and so you'll see just like you'll like see something far away, and then you'll see a set of it closer up and so you're getting this sense of like this is just one piece of something that's really huge yeah that's um, true a close-up in the melier's sense which is close up which uh, is yeah it's sort of you know the camera is moving closer to something but the people aren't really getting any closer yeah, to the camera yeah um well i guess we can go over it i think many should. of you yeah. many of you have seen this I, I was in the kind of realm where I'd seen it, and I'd probably seen it a couple times, mm-hmm. but it all just kind of faded into my memory. You know, I never, like, sat down and said, like, Trip to the Moon, you know? Um, <laughs> Tonight, we watched Trip to the um, Moon. And I highly recommend that everybody go and watch this. Yeah. Uh, more than more than anything so far. It's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, it is... Um, it's a bunch of astronomers um, who are at some. I think it's called the Astronomy Club. It's like it's like this science hall, and uh, I didn't I didn't know that they were called. It was called the Astronomy Club when I watched it, and so I was like, "Oh, this is a bunch of scientist wizards." Yeah, you know? no, that was also my <laughs> assumption. They're all dressed like in sort of like Halloween wizard costumes with like the star and moon hats and and robes. It's so cool. I, I it made me really wish that scientists nowadays would all just dress up in wizard costumes and just yeah. be be the the lords of the unknown, you know. Well, the, and <laughs> even in the context of the movie too, I think they are kind of scientist wizards because they they uh they all hold out their their telescopes and turn them into chairs which they then sit on. Mhm. Um which is you know, I don't think just any old astronomer can do that. I think you have to be an astronomer <laughs> magician. 
Um, and and so uh, they one of the one of the people whose name is Professor Barbin Fulis. Barbin, uh, uh, how did I say it before? Barbin Fulis. Barbin um, Barbin Fulis. I think is how mm-hmm. Barbin Fulis. Barbin Fulis. <laughs> Uh, uh professor barbacoa um he wants to he 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 draws on a chalkboard this is another like great scene of like anticipation you know he's he's presenting his idea to go to the moon and so he draws on a chalkboard like his plan to build a cannon to yeah. launch them to the moon and everything the, and at oh, go on. Say, the the plan visualized in this case of him drawing a dotted line on the chalkboard to <laughs> to the moon uh, it's simple, but effective. Um, um, Barbin Fulis, by the way, is uh, French for tangled beard. It's a nice little, nice little in-joke uh, for all the, all the French. Um, and yeah, the, the, like a lot of them go, you're crazy, I can't believe it, go to the moon, ridiculous. Yeah. But then some of them, they end up kind of coming around, and, uh... Some other the uh, five other astronauts or soon to be astronauts, but mm. science wizards uh, at this point uh, join him on his on his journey, and they are Nostradamus, Alcofrisbus, Omega, Micromegas, and Parafaragaramus. <laughs> Parafaragaramus. They are all transformers. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, they, in, in almost a, um, well, th- they, they begin building the cannon. Uh, it goes to a scene of, uh, like, a bunch of workers that are, like, putting together the, the metal and everything like that. Building and, a, a giant bullet for them to travel in. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and they kind of observe it, uh, then... They uh, go to the next scene, which is the one that I was talking about, where they uh, are on the far right edge of the frame and from like five miles away and looking down in at the construction site. And there's a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of you know fire and smoke and things as 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 the things being built. Yeah, sort um, of. It's it's a painted backdrop, but there's like actual like smoke effects and. Um... Things like that to kind of sell the. There's like you know smokestacks with real smoke coming out of them to kind of sell that this is way in the background and not just a painting. Yeah, so good. It looks great. Yeah. Um. And then uh, they are. Uh, there's one of them. Probably the second most famous shot from this is when they are loading the bullet into the cannon. Mm-hmm. The, the bullet that they travel inside yeah. of. Uh, Which I was reading the like. Um, uh, a lot of the sort of like smaller context of this movie. This movie works incredibly well with absolutely no context. Um, yeah. Which is great because like they've been relying on fairy tales for you to understand the context yeah. of what's happening. But this one is strong enough in its storytelling for you to understand without that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, go on. Um, but re- reading the sort of like original notes from it, uh, the the people who are loading the bullet into the cannon are supposed to be, uh, I guess, Marines or some sort of uh, military force, but they're all played by women in sailor outfits, um, which also, in this, like, fantasy world that Melies has created where wizard magicians, uh, scientists exist and go to and shoot themselves into the moon, 
the, also like the armed forces of France is like women in sailor costumes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's another piece of like great set work where like they they climb into this big bullet. Yeah, which is like and it takes up the whole frame. Yeah, and then a bunch of women in sailor costumes push it pushes it into a the back of a cannon. Yeah, and there's a bunch of kind of fanfare. There's all these like onlookers and people directing yeah. the the operations and everything. And it's like really building, you know, it's, yeah. it's building. Yeah, uh, it's great. And you you're getting more of these close-ups of the machinery and and the you know, chrome and brass and everything. It feels very H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, which mm-hmm. is clearly an inspiration well, on this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I guess, I don't know if Melies directly, like, cited those authors, but it's, there were two books from around the time, uh, From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, I think, and then there was another one uh, by H.G. Wells, I've read the title, but uh, just based on the Wikipedia, it seems pretty clear that those are, like, his main influences for this movie. Um, hmm. And then... Big big moment. the The cannon goes off. There's a big puff of smoke at the end of the like painted cannon backdrop. Yeah, um, which really helps sell it. And then we get arguably one of the most iconic shots in film history. Yeah, which is the the bullet hitting the eye of the moon. Yeah, um, which you know I'm used to seeing this in black and white. The color version was only discovered slash restored about 10 years ago Mm. um and so uh people the one that people are familiar with is is the the moon man the the kind of melty face pizza the hut moon man (laughs) um uh uh you know just getting the the bullet the, the bullet ships shot into his eye in black and white but in the color version uh his eye starts bleeding which i had never seen before yeah yeah um gruesome yeah it it brought a new context to the scene because i I assume that was intended because these are the original colors on the Mm -hmm. on the colored version of the print so yeah it's it's that classic shot of moving the camera moving closer and closer to the moon and then it uh it lands in and uh it's it's uh it's very very gruesome, as yeah. you said. <laughs> which is, it's also, this is the only shot which is like, there are a lot of like smaller effect shots in this of like mm-hmm. multiple exposures or like substitution splices, but nothing like too crazy. Whereas thinking about this shot, it is m- a much more sort of complex uh, visual effect than anything else in the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to the man... Um, man the with the rubber head. Man with the rubber head yeah. effect from uh, last year. Um, but yeah, it's, and it's, it's, it's combining that with a couple other, like, cause then the backdrop doesn't move. So it's clearly like, um, either a cutout or like a multiple exposure thing happening there mm-hmm. with it, with the moon getting bigger. And then there's uh, a substitution splice with the, the bullet appearing in the moon's oh, eye. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, another classic Melies moon face, which he loves. Right. Um, uh, his most famous moon face. Yeah, um, um, and f- this one with a human and not some gnashing demon yeah. moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not a giant like, uh, you know, cardboard moon with big teeth. <laughs> it's like you said, uh, a, a pizza the hut looking <laughs> moon man. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's a it is a great example of of Melies's kind of like magical realism in his movies of like yeah. I mean the 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 scale of this shot does not match anything else in the rest of the movie. Whereas the the bullet that hits the moon eye is you know about a quarter the size of the entire moon. Not that big, right. maybe an eighth yeah. the size of the moon. But then the next shot we see the the bullet landing on the moon in mm-hmm. a much more sort of like. I say realistic, but it's still like a bullet landing on the moon in a 1902 film, um, right? Yeah. But compared um, compared to landing in the eye, it's 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 more like it's not of, fanciful. It's not fanciful in the same way as a moon faced man who, yeah, you know, it's it's, it's not it's metaphorical like the moon man is. Right. Exactly. And and so what you do see them land on is a another beautiful set, yeah. um, which is this lunar surface with all of these spires and like natural spires and weird, uh, landscapes. And then you see the bullet kind of arrive and, and land on the ground. Yeah. And um, I think a practical effect of it just kind of like, yeah, getting brought in on a, on a track or a string or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the, the science wizards get out. Um, and no, no spacesuits, just umbrellas and top hats. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. I forgot that um, when they get ready to go onto the moon in the beginning, they take off their wizard gowns and they yeah. put on like explorer clothes. Yeah, they, they <laughs> so. put they put on like tailcoats and boots. Um, um, and so they look out on the horizon of the moon and they see the Earth rise over the horizon yeah which is awesome <laughs> which is i mean it's a really cool shot um and it it really kind of sells this thing but it also makes me think no one had been to the moon they didn't know yeah, what looking back yeah. at the earth was like and he kind of nails it <laughs> yeah yeah more or less I not mean, that i've I been to the moon but i've seen pictures it, this is very interesting to me from the from the perspective of you know what did a person from the 19th century think that the moon would look like yeah that that the moon would that the 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 system of what space of how space works and Mm -hmm. what the surface of the moon is like whether there is whether there are mushrooms there you know (laughs) um yeah uh turn yeah it turns out Melier's vision of the moon is much cooler, I think, than than the real moon. There are a lot yeah. more spires and a lot more mushrooms. <laughs> um, I also like how immediately after this, the explorers decide they want to, uh, you know, hit the hay. They want to take a take, spend the night. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they all get out their their blankets and lie down. Just sleep under the stars, but on the moon. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then a bunch of stars show up. We get a bunch of faces in the stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of cool. We get a bunch so, of like astrological, uh, like gods appear in yeah. the sky. Yeah, the the um, a moon god, a Saturn. I don't know if these are actual gods, but Saturn and a star mm-hmm. uh, all appear, um, like in Astronomer's Dream, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. like with kind of a person yeah. sitting on them, uh, uh, hanging from the ceiling, representing sort of the god of the moon or whatever. Yeah. Um, I guess just kind of looking down, like, hey, it's people on the moon now. <laughs> Good um, job, science wizards. Yeah. But then they, you know, they, they, uh, they wake up 
and head head off into. I'm trying to remember exactly what happens next. Um, they go into a cavern down down below. They see a shooting um, star before that, though, don't they? Oh, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, there's a shooting star. It looks cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they go down into a cavern, and the the cavern set is another just amazing backdrop set piece whole thing it's full of mushrooms there's a waterfall um it looks it looks great especially with the the hand colored version if yeah. you watch that one mm-hmm. um it'll be on the youtube uh and then one of all of them are holding umbrellas because that's just naturally what you do when you go to the moon um one of them opens his umbrella to protect you from the gamma rays yeah <laughs> um one of them opens his umbrella and sticks it into the ground where it becomes a mushroom mm-hmm. and starts and to starts to grow. Yeah. Um they're, and then thereby alerting the indigenous moon men. <laughs> Which I, I they get fleshed out more, but I, I I wrote a moon imp appears and attacks them. It is a moon imp. I mean yeah. we later in a few minutes we'll discover there's a whole culture of moon imps living on the moon. <laughs> but of course, Meliers is like, gotta have an imp in there. Gotta. <laughs> if not one imp, many, many imps. Uh, so the the imp starts like doing backflips and walking weird and, uh, and I, kind of attacks them. I love the the like initial reveal of the imp on all like the weird acrobatics he does. He does like mm-hmm. the thing where he kind of wraps his legs over his arms and scuttles yeah. on the ground. Kind of like a dog with an itchy butt. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's just great because it's like this sort of, you know, kind of spooky moment of introducing this this sinister moon imp. Um, yeah, and kind of making it move weirdly to, to sell its otherworldliness. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. this thing doesn't walk like a normal person. It walks like a dog scratching its butt. Um, <laughs> I read on Wikipedia that uh one of the this was i think his most expensive movie that he made up to this point mm-hmm. um and apparently a lot of that had to do with getting the the moon imp costumes made yeah uh, they yeah. ended up and there's being, a lot of them yeah, yeah. uh yeah this was 10,000 francs that that cost to make and that's which an, was that's much a 1902 more, money yeah this is much more than anything else that he'd made so far um yeah then we get uh one of the explorers hits the moon imp with his umbrella, and it, he explodes <laughs> in a puff of smoke. You know, standard, just kind of substitutes and splice. Puff of smoke, he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Though, like, that is sort of the way that they're defeated. They they yeah. all explode in puffs of smoke. Which on, is, on impact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> once once more of them start appearing and fighting and dying, it's just all of this is like... Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, we've seen... We've seen Meliers do that so many times at this point of, like, someone disappearing in a puff of smoke. Mm-hmm. But this movie is, like, the, uh, uh, what is it? It's it's the reference point of, like, of that effect. Mm. Kind of. Yeah, it's I like so. Yeah. It really, I feel like, at least me, when I think of that, sort of, like, someone disappearing in a puff of smoke in this way, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, trip to the moon. Mm. Um, mm. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Well, eventually the uh, imps and the moon men, whoever uh, they start, uh, they, they they capture the scientists, right? And there they is, take them. Sorry, uh, there is a canonical name I think for the moon imps. Oh yeah, um, um, according to the original like 
um, paperwork, I guess, uh, from the from the movie, or like what they would have uh, shown to the audience, like the, right. the program. Uh, selenites, right? Derived Lun- from lunar inhabitants. Derived from the goddess Selene of the moon, I believe. Mm-hmm. So the Selenites show up and uh, and capture the explorers. I wish you'd let me call them moon imps, but okay. We can continue <laughs> to call them moon imps. I just wanted to point out that there there they, there is a canonical name. Okay. Oh, we'll we'll, we'll f- the Selenites. Uh, the so they take them to their king basically once they're captured. Right. Um, there's dozens of them all in like a kind of um, uh, like castle guards uh, around this throne. Yeah. There's um, there's a moon palace. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the the moon imps or selenites have kind of uh, spears. Yeah, they they look somewhat aquatic, somewhat reptilian, somewhat skeletony. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They uh, they get brought into like kind of a throne room. This was the point watching the movie, by the way, where I was like, "Oh wow!" Like he really uh, this the the fancifulness is being fleshed out, you know, in this, in this really compelling way. Like he has created this moon society. Yeah. And, and this is, uh, this is our peek into this complete other world. The moon culture. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so they, they, they bring the captured scientists up to the King, uh, and they didn't capture them very well because the scientists immediately bust out, attack the king uh and he dies in a puff of smoke well they they attack the king by like grabbing him off of his throne and like yeah swinging him over his head and smashing him on the ground he's like <laughs> done with an effect like he runs over to him there's a a, a splice the king becomes uh, a dummy king mm-hmm. and then i'm pretty sure it's Melies as uh barbenfuelis just kind of thrashes him onto the ground since it's a dummy, and it's just like his, all his <laughs> limbs fly everywhere. Yeah, which and is another classic Melies effect. Yeah, uh, um, it it never will not be funny. It makes me laugh every single time <laughs> it happens. It's so so funny. Um, and yeah, he explodes in a puff of smoke. Everyone, you know, goes nuts, and uh, the scientists make their escape. Yep. Uh, and so. In in a chase scene that actually does understand screen direction, yeah, um, <laughs> they they run off to the left, and you see a couple shots of them running through the alien landscape and the aliens chasing after them, and they make their way back to their pod. Um, the all the scientists cl- clamber into the pod, uh, and uh, as as they are at the pod and making their way over, they're kind of taking out the aliens as they chase them. Um, yeah, it's little, little fights with the, yeah. with the Selenites as they're being chased. Um, the last the last wizard uh, isn't able to get into the pod quite in time, but the pod also needs help getting off of the moon. So he jumps, <laughs> he jumps onto it, and there's like a string on the, on the front end of the bullet. And so he hangs on the string to pull the bullet off of the cliff side that yeah. it is on. Um, so, and, so it will fall back to Earth, presumably. 
this this confused me for a second because I thought it just fell into the water into like an ocean on the moon. Mm. But they literally like pulled it off of a cliff on the moon and then it <laughs> fell all the way back down to Earth. Yeah. Um, so I guess that from the moon's perspective, that would have been a cliff up. It's 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 Melier's logic. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of the aliens kind of grabs on the back end of the bullet mm-hmm. um, and travels with them all the way down to Earth. And you see a shot of uh, the moon. Uh, you, see, you see a shot uh, through space of one of the astronauts holding on at the bottom, the bullet, and then the moon man at the top. And the little miniature version of the three of them kind of drift down through the frame from yeah. a really pulled back angle. They splash down in the water. Uh, the one shot ship... shot on location is the the ocean. Oh yeah, true. Uh, or is it because they have like a like a little fake ship that they? I think that was um... also shot in his studio. Hmm. Um. Well, a big a, a, a big ship picks them up and drags <laughs> them back to shore. Another um... thing too that he got right is like you got to land in the ocean. Like a, yeah, a pod right? crashing down in the ocean and getting picked up is like exactly how we get back from the moon yeah i was thinking that uh it's so yeah it's so interesting to see how how accurately yeah it was predicted i mean because we know there are there are moon men and mushrooms <laughs> up there um but uh yeah they come back triumphant there's a big party um, a parade even? a parade um and they it turns out that they have captured this stowaway alien uh, to do uh, to autopsies, do, to do on horrible him. things too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, for the sake of their science, they've captured this savage moon man. Yeah, um, and they have him in a net, and they drag him through the parade. Um, and that's, they that, all—that's a... where the gross colonialist stuff comes in. Yeah, uh, which has been asserted that is it, it is ironic, I suppose. Mm. Um, I don't know how much it felt like that because it does feel like somewhat of a colonialist movie. But um, apparently, even before he made movies, uh, Melies did uh, political cartoons, uh, many of which satirized colonialism and mm. were not uh, very into it. Yeah. Um, but who knows? Um, maybe uh, moon people aren't people to Melies. <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, the movie ends with a statue uh, that a, sta- a statue that was erected of one of the uh, space wizards, um, and he's got his his foot up on a little miniature moon with a bullet in its eye, and he's standing triumphantly above the moon as we have conquered space. What is next in our journey to conquer everything? <laughs> the end. Yeah. <laughs> Um, great film. Uh, yeah. I was just reminded just then of how many movies from around this time end on some sort of, like, tableau kind of representing the entire movie. A sort of, like, triumphant single image that yeah. feels more like almost a collage. It's usually a, uh... It's, uh, like sometimes a, a it's kind of like rising a... Yeah, like, like a bow. A yeah. curtain call kind of thing, yeah. Um, but then also, like, sort of we have finished the movie so party like in um right <laughs> in the magic sword last year last, last week yeah a, a um, lot of them end that way too um <laughs> we have finished the movie so no party 
<laughs> putting it. Um, yeah. Um, what else to say about this one? Uh, well, again, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing, this was extremely popular when it came out. Mm. Um, and Melies had already been dealing with a lot of scummy Americans stealing his <laughs> movies and, and releasing them as their own or just copies of them. And so in response to the extreme amount of piracy from this movie, um, uh, the, the next year in 1903, he formally created an American branch of uh, his film company, uh, which was done by his brother Gaston. Um, Gaston Melier. <laughs> and so that that was um, that was so that he could have local American distribution for all of his mm. movies. And I believe it is from that point where he started filming everything with two cameras, um, one for the international market and one for the domestic market. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, one big sort of takeaway from this movie is how watchable it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like we had kind of touched on it before, it requires no additional context to fully understand what is happening in every scene. Um, you don't need intertitles. You don't need to have any pre-existing knowledge of what, you know, trip to the moon stories are. Like it's right. it's, it's it's very clear and direct just through visuals what is happening yeah um and the visuals the visuals tell the story and um unlike a lot of other movies of this time the framing doesn't seem haphazard and mm -hmm. the, the framing brings you into the story and helps tell the story um the the shot composition and the shot choices and everything um you know, a lot of movies from this time can be really visually confusing, but this one, like, definitely isn't. Um, yeah, it uh, it's well-paced. You know, it kind of mm -hmm. starts a little slow, but then ramps up, and is, by the end of it, it's like, a lot of stuff is happening all at once, but uh, you're with it. Um, it's exciting. It's got, you know, chases and fights and spectacle and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, yeah, it is... Rewatching it both in its like historical context and also from like a modern eye, I do think it you know it's deserving of its uh, of its place. In, yeah, in film history, I think. Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've done it. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> uh, you got anything else, Glenn? I don't think so. I don't believe okay. I do. Well, that'll wrap it up for this week. Um, now, uh, remember you, we, uh, on the show description, we have links to every movie that we talk about on YouTube and the whole playlist and all that, uh, as well as links to our Twitter and, and whatnot. Um, and that's about it. See you. Oh, wait, we didn't do our favorite movie of this week. Oh, it's trip to the moon. Yeah. Trip to the moon. <laughs> okay. That was easy. Um, tune in next week for some cowboy action. Yeah. All right. Well, see you later, Glenn. Bye. Bye.